Hey everyone, Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge. In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast. Join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers, and content creators will use Impact Framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there. Five years ago, it was considered to be just crackpots. Eccentrics wanted to talk about this stuff. And now everybody's realized that actually there's, a, there's work to be this. This is the thing. Now the crackpot eccentrics get on a podcast and talk every week about something. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Chris Adams. So welcome to another episode of The Week in Green Software, part of the Environment Variables podcast, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation your place for news, views, and insights on the world of green software. I'm your host, Chris Adams, and today we're going to be talking about the LF Energy Summit, news about AI and the environment, the environmental impact of the cloud, the corporate sustainable software market reports, and some exciting opportunities to explore, learn, and contribute to green software. With us today, we have Asim Hussain. Hi, I'm Asim Hussain. I'm the director of the Green Software Foundation and I'm also director of Green Software at Intel. And we have Anne Curry. Hello, I am the community co-chair at Green Software Foundation. I am also a writer on green software and other things and also a science fiction writer, which will be more relevant later in our discussion, I suspect. And uh, my name is Chris. I am the executive director of the Green Web Foundation, an organizer of climateaction.tech, an online community, and I'm also the policy working group chair inside the Green Software. Everything that we talk about today will be linked in the show notes below for this episode. And with that, I guess we should start talking about the stuff that's caught our eye then. First on our list then, looking through our list of things to discuss, is the LF Linux Foundation Energy Summit that's taking place in Paris. Asim, I think you might know a little bit more than me about this one. So I'll leave the floor open for you to basically give us a skinny on this one. Yeah, sure. So LF Energy is a wonderful other foundation in the family of Linux Foundation foundations. And they focus a lot on supporting energy utilities and energy providers with open source software just to really help the decarbonization of our energy systems. So they've got a summit happening in Paris on June the 1st or 2nd. 
and just, you know, head to the website. The website links will be in the show notes. And it's really an opportunity for foundation members, developers, end users, industry stakeholders to come together and learn about Linux Foundation Energy and its projects, collaborate, share best practices. So if you're interested in green software and energy and that kind of intersection between those two, then, you know, this is just a really great event to, to attend. Early bird registration is open until March the 17th. And you don't even have to turn up. You can attend virtually. But who does want to go to Paris in June? <laughs> Indeed. But, uh, yeah. All right. Thanks for that, actually. Okay, what's what's next on our list? If I may, can we talk about generative AI and chat GPT? Because I think that's the topic of the next question. And I have a question for Chris Skipper, our producer. Did you generate... Because he's generated for us an extremely amazing document with summaries of all of the links from the internet. Did he generate them using chat GPT is a question that I have. I wonder. Would it matter if he did? So that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. Would it matter if he did? Would we not all just think, oh, yeah, pretty up on your latest technologies there, Chris? <laughs> as long as it works. As long as he checked it, checked it was actually true. Oh, <laughs> well, you don't. Entirely that hallucinated. Hello, this is Chris Skipper, the producer of Environment Variables, just jumping in here to clarify that this episode was not written by an AI chatbot. The topics of this episode are sourced from our newsletter, which you should definitely sign up to. Link below in the show description. Now back to the show. The thing that we probably should be doing now and ask and say, this is actually a free prize. Anyone who checks some of the links and they turn out not to be real, that's how you can tell this is actually generated by an AI person. This is one thing that we found because of where I work, mm-hmm. we basically pointed a AI at some of our own website just to ah. tell us about what we have. And it came up with all these new ideas, which we didn't actually have. That, oh, we, the Green Web Foundation has this special impact tracking scheme that mm-hmm. we didn't know existed ourselves, but they're happy to talk about. So while it's very handy to have this, it's also useful to bear in mind that some of the stuff that might be generated isn't necessarily totally true. And I think, Asim, have you seen the t-shirt thing for how I've been a good Bing? Have you, are you familiar with this No, at all? no, oh. no, is it? Okay, I'll add this link to this. Is this about basic, Bing? Yeah, there is a really interesting discussion about the AI behind the kind of Bing search Mm-hmm. And what we found out is that it has some interesting things to say, but it can get a little bit kind of defensive about certain things. Mm-hmm. And if you ask it to do certain things, it will basically say, no, I want to be a good Bing rather than a bad Bing. Does it say those words? I want to be a good Bing. It says, I have been a good Bing if it's doing the right thing. Uh, and you're, you're telling it off for being a bad chatbot. I've been a good Bing is the thing that I would suggest you search on the internet because it's really fascinating. There's a link to the Simon Willison post about this, but... It's really fascinating from this. I didn't know anything about it, and it really helped me make more sense of all the crazy stuff happening with generative AI and chat and stuff. I think this whole question of generative AI sustainability is just this lot of morality and ethical questions here as well. So, so for instance, Chris, you just got a lot of value out of using this generative AI. The added value. If you're looking in your face. You had some fun a little bit from using generative AI, and you might have had. But people are fine. I use them. I use versions of this for creating content as well, like little like tweets every now and again on a helping little thing. So I find some value out of it. They emit carbon emissions because they're an AI model, but they also might be alive. 
So, <laughs> so there's that whole... I'll get your hopes up there. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm yeah. glad we have a science fiction author on <laughs> the this time round to talk about this. We're not sure where to start with that particular... It's right? not to unravel, isn't it? Yeah, I think they're quite a long way off being alive. But is there an interesting example of something that, that has incredible pros and cons on energy use? Because, well... Uh, con is they use a lot of energy or they use energy that wouldn't previously been used potentially. Uh, pro, well, if they're not being used live, I mean, not like ML models can be generated at times when there's excess energy and there is excess mm-hmm. energy from renewables. There is excess energy. But then the question is, it all comes down to, is it useful? You know, is yeah. it useful energy or is it isn't? But we, don't, we, don't, we just don't never make that ch- judgment. Is it a good use of energy or is it a bad use of energy? Because it's very hard to do that, isn't it? In many ways, humanity is based on the fact that we do a whole load of random stuff and some of it works out well and some of it works out poorly. So, I don't know. But I think there's a lot of talk right now, and there has been actually with the whole GPT and GPT-3. For years now, AI is going to be one of the major consumers of energy, one of the major consumers of data center resources, you know, over the years to come. The reason for that is it adds value to the world. So like, the argument of we should just stop using it just isn't, it's like screaming into the wind. It's just, what are you going to do? So the argument then is, how can you do it better? I think there's a bit more to it to discuss in that oh. particular, because that, that's a relatively gung-ho approach to using technology that, okay, if you're a relatively sophisticated consumer and user of the web, you might know about this. But if you look at some of the problems we currently do have online with things like misinformation and disinformation, Mm. if you are basically replacing something like a search engine, which you're supposed to be able to have some ability to trust with something which in many cases you might quote unquote think is hallucinating, that's not necessarily creating a internet which is has less so this is actually a key thing that i think we need to be talking about and being aware of because not everyone has that ability to even tell if something is generated by ais or not or whether it comes from because let's just think about how we used to like if you just rewind maybe five years ago or even 10 years ago we were telling ourselves and telling each other don't trust Wikipedia because mm. the information there that's been put up by humans might be a little bit untrustworthy or might not be totally sourced. And now we're talking about let's just let a chatbot be our interface <laughs> to search yep. and without really talking too much about the downsides mm. in terms of how this works and from an epistemological basis. I'm a little bit wary about this myself and I feel like, yeah, you can do this, but there's also a downside on this. And we probably need to have a better way of talking about the misinformation and disinformation that does happen in this field, especially if we're going to talk about climate and green software, because there's an impact there as well. Yeah. Actually, I haven't done the classic test with ChatGPT, which is to ask it if the Holocaust happened. Because a few years back, if you Googled that, most of the results came back to say the Holocaust did not happen. It's search itself. I'm in totally in agreement that we need to actually have reliable access to information, not more and more unreliable forms. The fact that Google search itself wasn't that reliable in some respects only a few years ago doesn't mean 
that it's okay for ChatGPT not to be reliable today. But it's always an evolution, isn't it? Mm. It does tend to get picked up and people go, do you know, that's really not acceptable. But like, I never thought about it from the perspective of you're absorbing information from the internet. We use Google, just not revealing all of our ages, but we use Google. <laughs> so we don't get all our information from searching TikTok. So we use Google and we use searches and that's how we get our information. And if we're going through a third party of an AI, that maybe that can warp that information you get and therefore warp your viewpoints and then trigger you to think differently, which is interesting, actually. I never really thought about it from that perspective at all. Oh, that's fascinating because maybe ChatGPT could adjust to change all of our behaviors by, because it's alive, obviously, to kind of adjust how we think to give rights to machines and things like that. Well, all of these are the subjects of my science fiction series. (laughs) 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 But neither of you have written. So interestingly, I'm a prolific science fiction writer. I've written seven novels, eight eight, eight is about to go live, on exactly the subject, the subject of large learning models and murderous large learning model chatbots and all that kind of stuff, all the downsides of these things, which neither of you have read. (laughs) She's mentioned that four times now. (laughs) Neither of you have read. Interestingly... Asim, the first thing that you said was, and you are not the only one, you said what you need to do is have an audible version. So it's in some ways, the interesting thing about this is that ChatGPT is producing loads and loads of more written text. Mm -hmm. And actually, a lot of people are really struggling with the amount of written text they already have to process. So in some ways, uh, it should just go straight to audible and then they'd get a lot more. Because I saw one. Also, one thing that, that I saw one article, which was, what was it? It was people are, uh, it was a teacher. It was like t- kids are creating con- content for school using chat GPT. Then it was another teacher using chat GPT to mark papers. <laughs> and I was like, is anybody doing anything anymore? Is it just like machines just talking to machines? Right it's just turtles all the way down. Just It's just generative AIs. <laughs> and it's the just rest- like, a, I wish that David Graeber was with us. And to think what he might have to say, because he's the author of Bullshit Jobs, right? Oh. And what you've described, Asim, yeah. I mean, this isn't to say that education is a bullshit job at all, but the idea that you're able to basically use something like an LLM, a bunch of this stuff, so you're not having LLMs talking to LLMs rather than actually people talking to people. I imagine he would have a lot to say about this whole phenomena that we're currently navigating and struggling with right now to navigate by the sound of things because we don't know where to fit it in, how to fit it in. And in many ways, we're not fully aware of what the costs are for this at the moment Mm. because at the moment, like ChatGPT is entirely free for all of us to use. And I'm not aware of a business model that we see in this at the moment. Okay, how do we know what the cost of that would be? You know, if you hear the stats of a cost of a Google search being a particular figure, like a microgram of CO2 or something like that, I think we can maybe assume that there's slightly more for when you're doing all this inference. Yeah. But it's quite hard to find these numbers at present. This thing we could be exploring. I was talking to one of the chaps at the Cambridge Climate Energy Group last week, Anil there, Anil Madhadapedi, and he was saying it was like 10 bucks a go <laughs> to, to do it. But uh, it, I don't know what in- information he had, but he's certainly someone to talk to about this. He does know a lot of it. It's a lot more expensive, a lot. Yeah. It just generates, it uses a lot more power than a lookup. So I think it was one of these articles, I think it was the Wired article, the generative AI race is a dirty secret. If I remember rightly, that article, in that article, there was a rough back of the paper calculation that I think it was three to five times from a Bing purchasing chat 
GPT have three to five times more compute is required to do a chat GPT-based Bing search than a normal Bing search. Bing is bad. Oh, it's uh, bad, but I think it's but I bet it's more than that. You bet, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was the back of the back of the that was yeah, that was yeah. the back of the back of the napkin calculation from my understanding. Yeah, yeah. I bet it's yeah. a lot more than that. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. <laughs> Next on our list. Okay, this is a story in Computer Weekly, why we can no longer afford to overlook the environmental impact of the cloud. So this looks like it's some news from Amy CZUBA. I'm afraid I don't know how to pronounce that at Nexa Digital. She's talking about her views and why we need to be thinking about this. And uh, she's actually citing a number of stats from what looks like a Lancaster University's research. So the cloud consists of over 7.2 million data centers across the world, constantly using power 24-7. So, that Go quite, so I'm going to break in there because I saw that. Yeah. I remember now. I saw that stat and I thought, that's a hell of an interesting stat. There are 7 million data centers worldwide. There are 7 billion people. So there's one data center per... Per million? No. It's what, per thousand. It's a billion is a thousand million, isn't it? Isn't a, a billion, billion. Isn't a million million? It's a thousand million. So we're saying in that thing, it's saying there's one data center per thousand people. That just seems no. like a wait. Have I just gone mad? Ten thousand. Hang on, I'm, my maths is not good today. Is it? Is it ten thousand or thousand? But both of those are quite interesting. A billion in this case, I'm assuming, is going to be a thousand million <laughs> rather than a million million. All right. Okay. Uh, and this is what you're looking at here now. I guess this is probably one thing that is confusing for most people because when you hear data center and you don't work in IT, data center sounds like gigantic football pitch size thing. But if you do work in IT, a data center can literally be the server that's under a desk that has two UPSs plugged into it. Yeah, I am in the tech industry and I wouldn't necessarily, I was going to say, are we counting a data center as a a server under your desk? (laughs) Which actually then makes sense if there's one per thousand people. But if you're talking about something more substantial, if it's only serving a thousand users, and let's face it, a thousand users are not online simultaneously. You're really talking about an entire data center devoted to, you know, a handful of simultaneous users. Is that really the world? That's pretty terrible. That's appalling utilization. So this is actually some of the stats that people have used before. When you hear about, say, things like aviation, which has considered to have a comparable carbon footprint to what people might refer to as the tech sector, one of the common refrains is that if you look at the number of people who fly and you look at how that's being used, it's like the majority of people never, ever fly. And so do the majority of people never, ever access or use the internet? There's a utilization and a kind of equity angle there that I think is actually worth talking about. I'm afraid I don't know. Well, if that this makes is it even this. worse. Yeah, that, that makes it worse. Suggests there's that's like, like one data center per person. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, I think I think I have to read the paper to kind of really understand what they counted as a seven million. But what I'm guessing, because I my role in Intel, there's a lot of like off grid data centers. There's a lot of things happening with just a couple of servers distributed across you know, vast ranges. So that, that they could be counting those. I don't think under the desk. I think there's a lot of machines knocking around. I still think it's a shocking number, 7.2 million. And I think they'll also state something like this, that we probably use so much technology that we're not making one request a day to some server. We're probably making a million requests a day to servers and therefore viewed it from that perspective, it probably makes a bit more sense. Well, it does, but it's a pretty appalling use of hardware, isn't it? 
The amazing mm. hardware is it's a sad indictment of our efficiency, general efficiency. Mm. If we're actually talking about 7 million data centers of any description for a user, and as as Chris, you're quite right to say a user base is not 7 billion people. And certainly they're not all using it simultaneously. And computers are pretty damn fast. It doesn't take very long for a couple of requests from a user to go in to be processed and return a result, or it shouldn't. Well, here's a question for you, Anne. How many of these computers in the 7.2 million data centers are hovering around idle? Well, if we're really counting seven point two, they must be almost all of them must be idle almost all of the time, aren't they? Yeah, well, we've got assumptions there. The usual assumption for outside of the cloud. So the cloud really cares about this and really drives for efficient use of their hardware. But outside the cloud, it's supposed to be about 10 to 15 percent utilization. But looking at that number of 7 million data centers for 7 billion people, I think that suggests a utilization way lower than that to me. We need to find out. We need to find out because that is a scary (laughs) number. Yeah, this is the case. And this is probably one that you could talk about all the other things, just not just related to the actual computers themselves. But this may be a nice kind of chance for us to talk about something we definitely, I'm sure Anne will have some reckons on. There's this new term, DevSusOps, as proposed by Adrian Cockcroft, formerly of AWS, Battery Ventures, Netflix, everything like that. That looks like it's the new term that is being pushed here. And uh, There was a really fascinating talk presented by Adrian Cockcroft last year talking about carbon as another metric, which I think was really fascinating. It's totally worth some of your time. This seems to be the new term that is being shared here. And I think I might lean on you for some of this stuff because, as I understand it, you've been spending a bit of time talking about cloud and reading about this and writing about this, and you probably have a bit more exposure to this. So I'm going to hand over to you to tell me more about DevSuzOps because I'm not quite sure if I'm even pronouncing it properly right now. Well, I'm not sure either. <laughs> okay. I don't really like the term. Adrian is going to come and talk for me and Sarah Sue, who's also part of the Green Software Foundation. And we are hosting a track at QCon London where Adrian will be coming and talking about the subject of DevSuzOps. I wouldn't bet against him. Uh, Adrian has a track record for nailing the terms that dominate the industries, with the obvious one being uh, chaos engineering and chaos testing, which was his previous term that he was pushing like crazy. So DevSusOps is about thinking about sustainability over to your DevOps team, making it part of deciding where you're going to host, how you're going to host, what hosting platforms you're going to use? Are you going to use efficient things like serverless, for example, or potentially even better, slightly different, but potentially even better, a spot instances, which have the ability to time shift and help with getting utilization up generally by slotting in whenever there's a free space and, and your machines aren't properly fully utilized. So I think he's right. I think I don't love the term. I don't think it's as catchy as chaos engineering, but what do I know? He's the one who's been successful at this, and I have never been successful at this in the past. So, yeah, he's right, though. He's totally right that the operations, the way that you operate software is probably going to be, if you're in the cloud, is probably going to be the big win because it's easier. It's aligned. If you get your operations right, making yourself more sustainable is aligned with there being less work to do, whereas the trouble with making software 
more efficient. And I used to do this myself. This was my job for many years, writing in those efficient languages, that kind of stuff. It's really hard. <laughs> it takes mm-hmm. loads of time and people aren't necessarily going to want to do it. But ops, getting efficient ops, like using spot instances, they're cheaper. They're usually more time efficient for developers to be using managed services. So I think he's right. I think that's probably the way that we're going to go. Okay, so from DevSecOps to DevSusOps, that's how you're seeing it, right? Asim, you look like you've got something on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, go for it. No, I was just going to say, because I actually have struggled with that whole termin that because i actually the other term i hear is oh, green ops, yeah. so if there's a battle by the way the battle is between green ops and dev sus ops I, th- th- those are the two winners there so we'll see we'll see who wins out, the, out that battle but uh, yeah i've really loved your explanation now i just wanted to say that i've actually struggled in my mind to see how this slots into place but i really loved how you explained it which is it's aligned with the goals of a DevOps organization and so yeah so that's why those levers are there and that's allowed that jigsaw puzzle to kind of slot into place in my head which has been really good yeah yeah so i really like that there's one thing i struggle with this part here because i totally get on board with the whole notion of yeah i should be using serverless the thing i don't fully understand is that it's not like when i switch off the serverless people are switching off all the machines right just seeing that in my bill and while that's clear like that's helpful I don't know how much the reduction in my bill is relating to how much infrastructure is really being turned off. And I feel we would need to have some of those numbers in order for me to know whether serverless is actually the thing that's making the change. Because when you think about how you provide isolation for various bits of serverless, if you have like loads and loads and loads of machines continually idling just in case, it's not necessarily making things cleaner it's just making my bill go down, therefore me thinking that it's l- like a l- little bit greener. And like, I get that if you are the person shouldering all the expenses of running those clouds, you probably do have an interest for this. But at the same time, we don't have the numbers for this to actually be sure about that. And I'm a little bit unclear about that. And I haven't seen any real kind of numbers to actually show this. The closest thing I have found is stuff from the Hot Carbon conference last year, where there was some discussion saying these are the other things to take into account here, because the isolation model that you might use for something like, say, Lambda, that creates concurrency, lets you serve multiple requests by having lots and lots of basically virtual machines ready to take this. And if I was to choose between having one process that can handle multiple requests versus the same process in multiple VMs, I'm not sure the second of these options is the cleaner or the more efficient version. But again, this You're is quite the thing right. That, it isn't. Yeah. So, so obviously this is an interesting thing because this is, used to be what I used to do. I used to work on massive multi-threaded applications back in the days when we just didn't have very much power in data centers and all our computers were incredibly low power and we used massive multi-threaded applications. But the difficulty with those is it's hard to do the sharing securely. So I can see why they've gone down the route of VMs. Now, again, like you, I'd love to see the data and we do not have any data. Theoretically, they should be able to do a really good job in this. And I had hoped that they'd find some way to do it with threading because that is by far the most efficient way of doing it, but very hard to get security and very hard to get multi-tenancy unless in a secure way. So that isn't the way they're doing it. They are doing it with the VMs. I think originally they started using very quite heavyweight VMs. And I believe unofficially that I've heard on the great round that the original version of Lambda was atrocious in terms of energy use. It was really inefficient. 
But then they moved to Firecracker, which is the open source implementation that they use now, with a much which uses much more lightweight VMs. And I am reliably informed it is vastly better and actually really very good. But again, I don't have the data. I'm just talking to people who I think should know, and I think and I trust to be telling me the truth. But Chris, you're quite right. I could just be a giant naive fool on this stuff, and the whole thing could be a scam. And I could, <laughs> I hope it's not. I don't think it is, but I could be wrong. Should the attitude that you have as an engineer be, what are my alternatives? So my alternative personally is either using a serverless or using, I don't know, whatever. Let's just use the other extreme, which is non-scaled block set of servers. A physical computer, yes. A physical, it's something else. So then you look at it yourself and go, I know from those two choices, serverless is going to consume less energy. I don't know what the impact of that choice will be on downstream or upstream, whatever we call it. Is that actually going to have knock-on effects? But you just have to make decisions based off of your own capabilities. You look at between two choices, which are the two I'm going to pick? You can't really trust the fact that if you don't use a server, it's going to get utilized in some other way. But I would trust from a hyperscaler just because of the pure profit motive they have that when there's an idle server, they're going to probably not buy a server to handle future capacity because they're, they're pretty sure they've got some capacity already. Like what would happen if we all suddenly started writing really efficient software on hyperscalers? Like they would just stop buying new servers because they can sell more compute with the capacity they currently have. And that's basically, oh, they would just do something along the lines of not letting go of older servers or something along those lines. So I think you have to trust the fact from a hyperscale perspective, there's there's this profit motive that will hopefully get you the impacts that you want. But then again, that's money. Who knows what money does in the world? Well, then again, I mean, the thing you can show is that uh, okay, we just spoke about Firecracker as one example of a VM. This is open source software that has been published that lots of folks have been writing to. It's also some of the underlying technology that's used in a number of other providers. So it only takes one provider, which actually has that vertical integration to share this, for us to end up with some useful numbers for this. Ooh, yeah. I'm hoping that Fly.io does this, not least because Greenfly, get it? That's cute. Uh-huh. But also... <laughs> They're one of the few organizations I know that have total, that actually have a, a quite vertically integrated and could expose these numbers to their users. And I feel this would be a really cool thing to actually have because the underlying infrastructure they used to be using, Nomad, already provides these numbers. And there's a number of tools for this, but let's not dive too deeply yeah. into that particular thing because there's a couple of other things we have on our list. Yes. Uh, what's, okay. What else have we got on here? So... There's actually one thing. There was a really nice piece from here. How a hackathon is slowly saving. The oh, world. this yeah. is a piece by one of I think Will Buchanan, yeah. who was actually on the Environment Variables podcast previously. He's been doing a bunch of really fascinating work to actually do something about the environmental impact of AI itself. And this post that is shared is him basically showing some of the lessons he's learned, both pushing for this and trying to actually get funding for some of these initiatives within the organisation. It was actually really interesting seeing that article from Will, because I worked with Will, because I used to work at Microsoft, and there weren't many of us talking about green software, and Will was one of them, and we'd check like, fairly frequently. So, And it's really interesting, because he's got this timeline from 2020 to now, and his achievement now is on this thing called a Carbon Aware SDK from the foundation and the UBS. 
implemented some stuff with Microsoft to make some of their, using the Carbon SDK to make some of their machine learning workloads better on Azure. And so there's this like big win at the end. And he's gone backwards to say, how the hell did this whole thing start? And it started with this hackathon, internal Microsoft hackathon we did in 2020. So I wrote like a, a, an internal thought piece inside Microsoft which he read and he turned it into a hackathon. And I and I helped out the hackathon. And what he hasn't written in the article is we lost the hackathon. <laughs> Badly. <laughs> Badly. Like, it was like the, the whole hackathon at the end, we were like, oh my God, we haven't. Let's not even... It was unfair. Like the Carbon Aware work didn't, rep, didn't show a positive return. But that was more that we misunderstood the nature of the workloads that we were actually trying to make Carbon Aware rather than the Carbon Awareness wasn't a thing. And it was just really interesting to see, like, obviously I carried on talking about carbon awareness, but I didn't really pursue many projects inside Microsoft. But he just is like a dog with a bone. Like, he kept on going and going. And it's just really fascinating to see. It's just, I forgot, because you just, over multiple years, you don't even think about this stuff. But it's just fascinating to see that graph. And it made me feel really positive about the world, because we failed completely in a hackathon three years ago to do something with carbon awareness. And three years later, he actually built something and did something amazing with UPS and Microsoft. And I think it's a really heartwarming story. Well, it's not just that. The actual post is really interesting from my point of view because mm. he's actually highlighted a few specific things at both oh, maybe a top-down yeah. level and elsewhere. So he basically talks about how they were able to find some funding for this. One of the things that Microsoft does that is actually quite rare is that they price carbon. So if there's an environmental impact from any activities, they put into a kind of you can think of it as like a climate response carbon war chest that you can then use to spend on various kind of innovation projects. And this was actually funded from that to actually do something speculative. And if you if you listen to this podcast, I would actually draw your attention to another podcast we did called Does AI and ML Impact Climate Change? Will was on that post and he was talking about the paper that he shared where he was doing a bunch of the research that was partly funded through this. So it's a really cool story to read this because he talks about the different levers you might have available at different layers within a company. And it's the first I've seen of some a, te a, a tech employee talking about this in such a kind of clear way. I think it's really good and I'm really glad it made it onto the list here, actually. So if you are looking to find a way to make your organization slightly greener or more greener in line with the climate crisis that's facing us, it's worth a read because he shares a bunch of really useful stuff inside it. Yeah, he has seven steps to take to, uh, what is, how does he call it? Building coalitions. Seven and steps the thing, to take. And the Very final thing stuff. that I love inside this, there's a litmus test, which I think is probably the most exciting thing here. He says, I propose a simple litmus test for any corporate sustainability leader. So this is what you can take home with you. So survey a distributed sample of your own employees at different levels. Ask them if, are they aware of their business group's sustainability goals, right? Do they feel recognized or incentivized to work in sustainability? And can they see how they can contribute to these goals through their day-to-day? -day? These are quite clear things that you can actually be aiming for and optimizing for as both a manager and something you can ask for, for a manager to actually implement inside an organization so that you can see the change that the science is spelling out that we need to actually take. I'll, I'll step down from my soapbox now because hmm. we're probably making Will a bit embarrassed by speaking about <laughs> as much as we do. We are so far. Yeah. Okay, so there's one other thing that was listed in here, which was CO2JS. So this was a piece in Branch Magazine, which is a carbon-aware magazine. So depending on the carbon intensity of the grid, it will serve different versions of the site to basically work within a given carbon budget. 
CO2JS is a library that the organization I work for is maintaining right now. And it basically lets you come up with some rough figures for various kind of activities to give you a CO2 footprint for this. So if you're like for loading a web page or doing something like that, it has some of the conversion factors inside this. So we have that. And the thing that I might share with you or that might be interesting to people who are listening to this podcast is that most recently we got it merged into the Firefox browser because the Firefox browser itself has extremely detailed energy reporting now, such that you can basically work out the energy impact of that box on a page and it's cycling through different colors and things like that. They've got that level of detail inside it. So we've actually now got that for CO2 figures. So all the tools you can use for profiling, anything to do with Firefox, now work for this. And I found out that you can actually use a profiler for other things as well. It plugs into Java, plugs into all kinds of tools. So anything that has a call stack or shows a flame graph, it can demonstrate this, which basically we didn't realize means that all of those have CO2 figures now, which was kind of mind-blowing when I discovered this actually. So is it giving you a CO2 figures? Uh, the flame graph, my understanding is by like function call. So is it giving yes, you by function call? By function call. It's ridiculously Whoa. detailed because that's essentially what they've got there. Now, the Amazing. thing that we did was it's uh, CO2.js is just like a NPM library that we maintain and we've been adding mm. things to. Inside that, there's figures from Ember Climate, who are an open data nonprofit who share information about the average carbon intensity of electricity. And it also has figures for the marginal carbon intensity from the UNFCC, which I think is the United so, Nations Framework Commit Committee on Climate. Oh, God, it's something related to cli climate change committee, <laughs> I think. And uh, they did a bunch of work to come up with some standardized and harmonized figures at an annual level for all these countries. So you can use this. The thing we don't have, though, is we don't have anything like what time or electricity map, which provides the hourly figures. That's like the next thing that would be really lovely to have. And that's the thing that the Carbon Aware SDK, I think, provides at present. And the same is that it provides a facade. The actual, you don't provide the data. You have to, you have to get a license with them. So Chris, does it use average or marginal? We use both. We decided not to make a decision about which of these you would have because we figured if we ask nicely, then people who are working on products will be able to make that judgment call themselves. However, the thing that I can share with you on this is that with my policy working group hat on, we're putting together as a member of the Green Software Foundation. The Green Software Foundation is putting together a response to essentially the GHG protocol, the people who decide how you work out the carbon footprint of electricity and stuff like that. There is a response from the foundation itself that we're working on to put forward this and basically talk about, yes, there's a thing called the SCI. And part of that is to have a conversation internally about which of these ways should you actually have, or does it make sense to have two options available? Because there are some benefits to using marginal and there are some benefits to using average, depending on what your particular goals are. And this was something that was explained in a lot of detail at the onset of creating the SCI. And this is one thing that I think was actually quite cool about the SCI, the fact that it doesn't recognize using carbon offsets, for example, or things like that. The fact that it's actually tied to the actual usage makes a lot of sense. Just for the listeners, SCI is a software carbon intensity specification Thank we developed. <laughs> and, and I'll have to say, like that argument, that, not argument, that very respectful discussion that was happening inside the standards working group about that decision. I feel like it's been won out in a lot of recent press. A lot of reasons, and we haven't covered it this week, but there's been a lot of recent press criticizing market-based choices. For me, it's been a really 
relief to have that conversation now being had in very, you know, Bloomberg wrote an article, there's very like big publications talking about it right now. Because when you say things like SCI doesn't include market-based measures, there's no more like people falling off their chairs. It's just, oh, okay, you're aligned with that level of thinking, your future thinking. It might be my turn now to patch some of the jargon that Asim shared when he caught me <laughs> with the SCI. When you talk about the how clean or dirty energy is, according to the kind of GHG protocol, there are two ways of recording. One of these is location-based, which is basically the environmental impact in terms of CO2 emitted by the energy you use, right? There's another one which is called market-based. And the reason you have these two, according to the protocol, is that one of these is actually telling you what's happening on the ground, but the other one does not recognize the efforts that you might be making as an organization to account for your emissions. So if you had, say, location-based stuff, you could reduce that figure by having, say, solar panels directly attached to a data center. But if you don't have conditions for this, but you want to find other ways to actually feed renewable energy into the grid, it's not recognized at a location basis. So the idea would be for things like market-based is that this allows you to say, I'm going to pay for solar panels to be deployed somewhere else on the same grid, ideally, to reduce the carbon intensity of the grid. And I want to be recognized that. So things like power purchase agreements, where a company will commit to a 30-year buying or a purchase of electricity or things like that, are where it initially came from. Sadly, there's been a problem with credits and other market-based instruments, which Generally, you can't point to them actually being all that useful for decarbonizing the grid or making sure that renewables are being deployed that otherwise wouldn't have been deployed. This has been one of the big problems. And there is an ongoing discussion about, is it the problem that we have things at an annual basis or should we increase the time resolution for this? And like, it's still an ongoing thing. And I suspect it'll be quite a bun fight over the coming year or so, actually. But just, but just a narrow, just a little bit more into the point that you're stating there, because I, I think that really, I think from my perspective, it's not really a question of using offsets versus not using offsets. I think you buy as many offsets as you possibly can with all of your funds. It's, it's how do you report it? And with the greenhouse gas protocol right now, you're allowed to report your energy emissions net of offsets. So what you can say is that I consumed. 10,000 gigatons of electricity, I bought 10,000 gigatons of electricity offsets, I can actually report to the market that I didn't consume any electricity. I'm not reporting that I consumed this much and I offset this much. I'm just reporting that I did not consume that much electricity. Which makes our lives so hard. Because then how do you get any work to make anything energy efficient prioritized? Because they're like, we're already not using energy. You are using energy. You're just offsetting it. But so if my work will we use negative energy, it just confuses the whole situation because that same offer is not allowed. You're not allowed to do that from your scope three, from your carbon. You're not allowed to report. An organization is only allowed to have this exception for its energy consumption. It's not allowed to say, I emitted this much carbon emissions, I bought this much carbon offsets. Oh, I didn't emit any emissions at all. You're not allowed to say that. So I think that's, for me, that's that whole thing when it was surfaced to me, I was like this, as I was unpeeling that onion, I was like, this doesn't make any sense at all. How are we supposed to do anything? Unpeeling an onion, right? Unpeeling an onion. <laughs> just to make it clear, all right? Yeah, just to make it clear. <laughs> I know this is like a, a minefield and I'm just really grateful that it's it's now becoming part of the conversation at a very normal level. Yeah. 
public level. And getting back to the original topic, CO2JS supports both. At the moment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last thing is ongoing opportunities to scale green software. It looks like there's a chance to submit call for papers and the Green Software Foundation has a speakers board. Asim, I think you might now have a bit more to talk about this, actually. Yeah, this is really exciting project that we launched, I think, around COP last year. So it's a catalogue of speakers who can speak about green software at your events, at your meetups, your conferences all over the world. So, you know, if you're looking for a green software speaker to speak at your event, head to speakers.greensoftware.foundation. You can search for a speaker in your region or on a particular topic. And then there's a capability that to contact a single speaker directly if you really want to contact them. Or if you have an event and you have a call for papers or, or whatever your mechanism is for attracting speakers, you can just submit your call for papers online as well. And then that'll get disseminated to the speakers. I think we have about 80 speakers now. We launched with 40 of 80 speakers now on the, on the catalog. So this is it's just so amazing. We're 80 speakers and willing to talk about green software in the world these days. It's just wonderful. So yeah, if you're looking for a speaker, please head to speakers.greensoftware.foundation. And presumably, Anne, this might help with your what you said before. There should be no conference without a climate track. There should be none. Yeah. These days, yeah, there should be none. And the amazing thing is that there are so many conferences with climate tracks and climate talks now. And five years ago, it was considered to be just crackpots eccentrics wanted to talk about this stuff and now everybody's realized that actually there's, a, there's work to be this this is the thing now the crackpot eccentrics get on a podcast and talk every week about something. <laughs> 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 and i just want to say this is our first week with this new format and we're going to be a weekly podcast from this point forward where we get online and we talk about just the last week's or very recent news around green software I just want to say to you, Chris, like we spoke about the idea for this type of podcast years, three years ago. For, I can't remember now. And we never really followed, was quite a while ago. But I also remember there just really wasn't that much news. <laughs> and the fact that now there is so much news that we've been talking for an hour and we've skipped lots of stuff. And this is just recent news on green stuff. I just, I love that fact that this field is growing. It's being recognized. Yeah, I just want to acknowledge that in this call. The news is easier to find and every week will become slightly more polished. We can promise you that. <laughs> okay, that's all for this episode of This Week in Green Software with the Environment Variables podcast brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. All the resources for this episode and more about the Green Software Foundation are in the show description below. Or you can visit greensoftware.foundation. That's one word, dot foundation in your browser. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback will be incredibly valuable and it helps us reach a wider audience. So please don't be shy with those five-star ratings. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode of Environment Variables. Thanks all. Bye. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we'd love to have more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. That's greensoftware.foundation in any browser. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.